Friends, I'm in Farmington this weekend to finally get the chance to celebrate with the folks up there our brand new Sagebrush campus. Due to COVID restrictions, we weren't able to celebrate the way I hoped that we would, but now that the state is wide open, we're gonna party like a 1999. I'll miss you this weekend, but you probably won't miss me. Today, we have a very special guest speaker. My former pastor who I served with at Hoffmantown Church, Charles Lowry, is here with us. Now, Charles is the man that God used in my life to start this church. Charles has always had a heart and a vision for the west side of Albuquerque, and he was the one who saw something in me and gave me the opportunity of launching this church. I think it's safe to say that this church doesn't exist without God using Charles to start it. So we owe him a great debt of gratitude. Charles has been my friend now for almost three decades, and I wouldn't be where I am today without him. So would you please join me in welcoming Charles to the stage? Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I'm also Todd's psychologist. He didn't say that. And uh, uh, he will actually be somewhat normal for a few weeks after I leave, and then I'll have to come back and normal him up a little bit. Uh, you know how that goes. I'd like to talk to you about bad times, difficult times, not just bad days. I mean, everybody has bad days. I mean, you know it's going to be a bad day, don't you, when you get up and put your pants on backwards and they fit better. You know it's probably going to be a, a, a bad day, you know. You get up and your wife says, good morning, Harold, and your name is Earl. It, it's it's going to be a bad day, you know. You get up and your waterbed leaks and you realize, I don't have a waterbed. You know it's going to be a bad day, you know. You, you, you get up and it's football season and your team's the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, you know it's going to be a bad day. I'm a... Uh, uh, most of you probably know I'm a huge cowboy fan. They're actually going to be pallbearers at my funeral so they can let me down one last time. Uh, but uh, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about bad days. I'm talking about when life turns bad. As a psychologist, I've worked with people coming to my office, and they were sitting on top of the world, and the world is rolled over on them. It's a fallen world, and this world will always be difficult. Nobody lives happily ever after. And so we look at a man named Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible, and the oldest question in the Bible, why do bad things happen to good people? And we see what happens when God gives Satan permission to mess with somebody. It's a book about hell's power with God's permission. Now, Satan does not have unlimited power in this world. He has what we call limited liberty. That means he, the Bible describes him as like a roaring lion. He, he's not a roaring lion. He can scare you, but he can't do anything to you that God doesn't allow. I actually one time turned a corner and was like almost face-to-face -face with a lion. I mean, it was like a boom. It's like five feet away. That lion was big, and it was roaring. It looked mean. But me, I was cool. I was calm. You'd have been proud of me. I was collected, man. The lion didn't scare me. The reason, I was at the zoo, and uh, there was a big plate of glass between the lion and me because the lion could not get to me, and that's what limited liberty is. Satan cannot get to you unless God allows it. But in this book, we will see 
God allows Satan to mess with a man and destroy his life. If you have your Bible, look in the book of Job. Now, Job and Satan are actually communicating. They're talking about this man, and God's bragging on him. He's my man. He's upright. He's a blameless man. He's not a sinless man. None of us are, but he's a blameless. He's a good guy. And Satan is saying, well, God, you're a celestial bellhop. No wonder he serves you. No wonder he loves you. You've blessed him. You know, you bought him off. He's got kids are doing great. He's got a Mercedes chariot. He's a member of the country club. He's got lots of money. He's got houses, land. But if you took away all that stuff, he would curse you to your face. You're just his celestial bellhop. And God says, okay, well, let's listen. In verse chapter 1, verse 11, but stretch out your hand, Satan says, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hands. In other words, you can do anything to him, but you can't touch him. Limited liberty. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And all of a sudden, Job lost everything. Ten kids, dead. All of his houses, gone. All of his wealth, gone. Overnight, from prosperity to poverty, from respect to ridicule, whole life gone, destroyed right before his very eyes. What would your response be? You wake up in the morning, you lost your family, you lost all your material possessions. You have nothing. Job responds, verse 21, and there's what he said. Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, how could he respond that way? Would you respond that way? I don't know if I could respond that way. How could he do that? Job understood what we need to understand. He said it pretty clear. I came in this world without anything. I had nothing. And when I go out, I'll have nothing. That, that's the way life works. Life, life goes full circle. Always has, always will. When I was a little kid, my dad helped me go to the bathroom. My dad had cancer. I helped him go to the bathroom. Life goes full circle. Death runs in my family. I think it runs in your family, right? Pretty much coming to this world, no teeth, no hair, no bladder control. That's pretty much how you're going out. <laughs> you're going to die. One day you're peacock, next day you're feathers. It's over. I mean, it's, that's life. And Job was able to say that because later on, here's what Job says. I know my Redeemer lives. Now, this is the Old Testament, probably the oldest book in the Bible. But somehow, God knew, uh, Joseph knew, there is a God, and he loves me, and he's going to take care of me. And by faith, he says this, I know my Redeemer lives. And even, and he gets pretty graphic, even if worms destroy this body, I know my Redeemer lives, and I, I will see God. I'll still see God. I know my Redeemer 
lives. You see, it's a shock coming to this world, isn't it? I mean, let's think about it. That nine months before you showed up was the best it's going to get. I mean, all you did was eat and float and float and eat and eat and float and float and eat. Man, it was so good. And now all of a sudden, boom, you're born. You got to cry now every two hours just to get something to eat. You can't walk. You don't have a job, and you already owe $82,000 on the federal debt. I mean, it's tough, isn't it? <laughs> and then they start making goo-goo faces at you. I mean, you're screaming and hollering. You got these people making, look at that little fella, look at that, you know. Hey, but you get to know them. They're mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and pretty good folks. And then you become a teenager and then you go to college, maybe get a job. And you get married and have kids of your own. And then you have teenagers and realize what that was like. And then you retire and then you may go back to the same hospital you're born in all alone. But if you can say, like Job, I know my Redeemer lives. That's the paradox of life. Well, see, when you come into life, you're screaming and crying, all those other people laughing. They look at that. What the Bible teaches is when you go out of this life, if you know Jesus, you're going to be laughing while everybody else is crying. Why? Because you know your Redeemer lives. But Satan's persistent. Satan says, okay, he passed that test. But let Job feel pain. Let me get a hold of him. And again, limited liberty. God says to Satan, you can touch him. You can, you can make him feel pain. You can almost destroy him. But you can't kill him. You can't kill him. And overnight, Job is in unbelievable pain. Unbelievable pain. And, and Job's probably like me. But he's probably like a lot of guys. Males... We're just big babies when we get sick. I, I mean, I'm a big baby. When I, when I first got, first, when I was married, the first time I got sick, I thought Penny was going to, you know, get me Bluebell and Snickers, the little boy's sick, and take care of him. And uh, she said, take a shower and go to work. You'll be okay. And, and, I, and I just wanted a little more than that. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know if Job was like that at all, but he looked to a little bit encouragement. Now, remember, he's lost his whole family. The kids are gone. He's looking to his wife for a little bit of encouragement. And what does she say? Well, then his wife said to him, verse 9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. How'd you like to be married to Mrs. Job, guys? <laughs> I mean, just thank God you didn't marry her. <laughs> Curse God and die. Check your life insurance policy, maybe, but die. You know. Now, that's what happened? I'll tell you what happened. It happens to a lot, of, a lot of people. You see, I believe Mrs. Job and probably Mr. Job were too emotionally dependent on their children. They invested everything in their children, and they quit investing in their marriage. We call it the gray divorce this, this, right now. There's an epidemic of gray divorce. when the kid, See, I tell people around the country, you know when life really begins? Life really begins when the kids leave home and the dog dies. That's pretty much when life really begins. But you have to be ready for it. You have to invest in that marriage as much as you invest in that family. Matter of fact, the more you invest in the, family, the marriage, that's the better you would do for your family, for your kids, as they see that healthy relationship. But they didn't do that. And then all of a sudden, 
There was nothing there, no encouragement there. And then Job's friends show up. Now, life gets difficult. You're going to need some help. There's some hills you can't get down by yourself. My wife, uh, from the very first time she tried it, loved snow skiing. I mean, she just loved it. We lived in Dallas, and I was a speaker for a lot of events, and they would want to book us to go do ski retreats, you know, single ski retreats, leadership ski retreats. And my wife said, let's do that one. Let's book that one. I said, no, they're paying. They're not paying me anything. I don't want to do that. Yeah, we're doing that one. Yeah, we're doing that. I mean, she wanted to book all those ski retreats. I did not do well from the start. It was a contact sport from the beginning with no airbags, you know. Uh, I, uh, I just didn't, I didn't do well. I mean, I, did, I just didn't. Matter of fact, any sport that has an ambulance at the bottom of the hill, uh, you know, just, just, you know. Matter of fact, if you, if you want to go snow skiing, let me, let me help you here with just a little bit, uh, give you a couple exercises. Uh, take some gloves and soak them in water and then put them in the freezer for like 24 hours and then put your arms in there and just walk around like that for a little while. And then... Uh, uh, then find some stairs and run up those stairs like up there and then come down without your legs. Just boom, 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 boom. You can run a boom, boom. Do that about five or six times. You'll almost be ready. And then not quite. Run into a wall. Find a wall and just run into it. And the wall will knock you down. And then as you're trying to get up, have people put ice down your back, you know. Put ice down. And then give them lots of money. Oh, here's lots of money for doing that. Well, as you can tell, I, I don't do well with skiing. We did a ski leadership retreat, and the first day I did awful. So I decided to sit in the hot tub the next day, take the day off, spend some time with the Lord, you know, meditate, because I spiritualize my psychological problems just like most of you. And so I, uh, sitting in the hot tub, my wife comes by and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting in the hot tub, taking the day off. She said, you can't take the day off. You're the leader. I said, I'm sore. I'm taking the day off. How can you be sore? She says, you jog two miles a day. I said, when I jog, I very rarely hit trees or fall down. And I hit trees yesterday, and I fell down, and I'm sore, and I'm not going. And then she starts quoting me, you know, all that. You got to face it to fix it, and you got to show up to grow up. No, you know, I hate it when she quotes what I preach. I, I, I say, that's for other people, okay? Uh, uh, so she gives me that disgusted look. You know, women go to some school where they have disgusted looks. They teach them. And, uh, so she gives me, like, disgusted look 23, and she goes off. So my buddies come by, and they say, Charles, look, we heard you had a bad day. We want to take care of you. We, we want to just go out and work with you and, and work on your technique, and we'll stay on all the easy slopes because we know you're, you're struggling. So I said, okay. And they, they did. They, we went on the greens and the easy blues. And, you know, and it was nice. You know, they got sweet names even. I mean, like Peter Rabbit Hill and Peach Blossom Run. You know, we're on these sweet little hills and Peter Rabbit Run, Peach Blossom Hill. And we make a turn. And we're on a black slope. It's straight down. And there's nowhere else to go. And when they get to the black slopes... They forget about public relations. It's not Peter Rabbit Hill or Peach Blossom Run. It's like Casket Runaway, you know, uh, or Paul Bear's Peak, you know, stuff like that, which is just kind of camouflage for you're going to see Jesus today, you know. Uh, I'm looking straight down. I'm scared to death. I'm confessing sins I just thought about doing. I mean, I, I, uh, 
I thought of Todd. I confessed some of his sins. You know, uh, uh, I'm surrendering to go to Haiti, to foreign missions. Uh, God, just get me down. I got a buddy, a friend of mine, uh, expert skier over to the right. He says, Charles, don't look down. Don't look down. Make your little S's and ski over to me. I made my little S's ski over. And then he went to the other side of the mountain. Don't look down. Make your little S's ski over to me. Don't look down. And he got me down that mountain. I want to tell you, my friend, there are some mountains in life. Can't get down by yourself. You need some friends. You need a friend who will give you the truth without fear. You need a friend who will give you a sensitive tear, somebody you can cry with. You need a friend who will give you a good cheer just to encourage you. You need a friend who will give you a listening ear, somebody that you can just talk to. And you need a friend that sometimes will give you a kick in the rear. You know, just say, you got to get throwing a pity party. Get out there and do it. Some things in life you can't get through by yourself. I have a buddy of mine, he uh, lost his wife to cancer. And sometimes we'd just cry together. Uh, start to pray and just, just cry. He church gave him four weeks vacation. He called Penny and I and said, I, I don't know what to do. They gave me four weeks vacation. I've never been on a vacation, really, that I can remember without my wife. I, I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I said, come to Dallas. We'll help you plan your vacation. We planned his vacation, and we'd, I met him at certain places. We had other people meet him at certain places. Why? Because you got to get him through the vacation. I mean, you got to get him through that time. To... So Job's friends show up, and they are the worst friends imaginable. I mean, they are so much like, I mean, some, you, sometimes you, you know why Jesus hung around with sinners, because church people are such a pain sometimes. I, I mean, they came with their theology, they came not to put themselves in Job's shoes, but put themselves in God's shoes and to try to tell Job what all he was doing wrong. They came with platitudes instead of doing something practical to help him. And instead of doing ministry, they left in misery. And Job was just getting more and more and more discouraged. Let me just help you here with something practical. When people are in difficulty... You don't help them get over tragedy. When tragedy happens in your life, it, you never get over it. You learn to live with it. It's always with you. So you help the people so they don't give in to their grief. Grief is going to be there. But you have to fight that grief by not isolating yourself. It's called, with isolation and inertia. If you quit moving and you isolate yourself, you cannot handle the grief. It's called over-solitude. And you'll stay focused too much. You have to get back out into your life, although it's difficult. And that's how you help friends help you in the practical things of life. So you can rediscover life, although you will carry your grief with you. And you help them in practical ways. Practical is always better than platitudes. When we lost my grandson, the lady that I think gave us the most comfort, she said, I'll come to your house. And for two weeks from 9 to 5, I'll answer the phone. And I'll take messages from all your friends who call around the country. Because I know you don't want to tell that story about your grandson over and over again. I'll, I'll do it for you. That was such a comfort to us. But Job's friends were not a comfort to him. Matter of fact, they kept 
him in difficulty. And finally, he is so discouraged with, you won't won't believe what they said to him. They said things like this, chapter 8, verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them unto the hand of their transgressions. In other words, your children deserved what happened to them. That's what they told Job. Then then Job says to them, he's, he's had it with these guys. What you know, I also know. I'm not in fear to you. I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. You're worthless physicians, all of you. And then I love this, I love this verse. He says, Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. In other words, the smartest thing you could do is be shut up. <laughs> I tell you, I, I want to tell people that sometimes. Smartest thing you can do is shut up. Job's friends were not the kind of friends he needed. Decide, I'm going to help people overcome that tragedy by helping them in practical ways re-enter their life. But Job reaches a point where he says, I've had it with you. I want to argue with God. Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have ever wanted to argue with God? Just raise your hand. The rest of you, liar, liar, pants on fire. By the way, don't you wish liar, liar, pants on fire was true? I mean, wouldn't that make those political ads a lot more entertaining uh, if it was really true? Uh, We've all wanted to argue with God. Why? Because we all resist authority. We want to tell God what to do. Listen to your prayers. We want to tell God what to do. This general, he... uh, One Saturday, he called down to the base. He wanted to do an inventory. So he said, you know, you need to take an inventory. I want a count of everything that we have. And he really forgot that he had called for the inventory. But about a month later, on another Saturday, he got to thinking and said, you know, I I ordered that inventory, and I forgot all about it. So I'm going to call down there. Probably won't get anybody to answer the phone on Saturday, but I want to check it out. So he calls down to the base, and he gets some private on a Saturday afternoon doing duty, and he, started, he asked the private, just, how's that inventory going? And the private was quick thinking, kind of fast-talking private. And he said, it's going really well. We work hard down here. And he said, well, well, tell me what you're finding out. Well, he just started making up stuff. Oh, we're finding lots of stuff. You know, we got, we got you know, 800 guns. We got this. We got how many, we got, man, he's talking about, you know, we got these many Jeeps. And he was just on a roll. He was making up stuff. And finally, he was on such a roll, he said, we got five Cadillacs for those fat generals to ride around in. And boy, it got quiet on the general's end. The general said, "Uh, Private, do you know who you're talking to? And uh, he said, "Uh, no. He said, this is General Edgar Brown. And it it got quiet on the private's end too, but he was a quick-thinking private. He said, General, uh, do you know who you're talking to? And the general said, well, no. He said, good, goodbye, fatty, and hung up the phone. (laughs) Now, let me tell you psychologically why you laugh at that. Because you resent authority as much as I do. That's why. (laughs) We all want to do what we want to do, and we don't want anybody else to tell us what to do. And Job says, I want to argue with God. And God shows up. (laughs) Chapter 38, here's what God says. Who is this 
that darkens my words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, or who determined the measurements on where the bases would be sunk? He says, Job, you want to you wanna talk to me? You want to question me? I think I'll question you. Let's start with creation. Where were you when I created this world? Where were you when I created gravity, when I sunk the bases? You understand gravity, Job? You understand when you jump up, you come back down? Job's probably thinking, I've always wondered about that. (laughs) Uh, But Job got quiet, really quiet. And God just started asking question after question. You ought to read it sometimes. It's like 70 questions. Questions like, Job, where were you when I put wisdom inside your inward parts? In other words, one day, Job, he could have said it this way, they're going to get all excited about computers and microprocessing, and they're going to think they're so smart. Well, Job, I put a computer inside your head called your brain. How did I do that? Job's thinking, I don't have a clue. He might have said it like this, Job, one day they're going to have stations like National Geographic and Discovery Network, and it's all going to be about stuff I created. How did I do that, Job? And then he says this, Job, do you want to be right and me be wrong? Do you really want to take over my job? Do you want to be God? And then he says this, do you have an arm? Can you thunder like God? In other words, one day, if you want to be God, you got to thunder. I mean, they, they kind of like that thunder. It's all over. Let me, Job, let me hear your best thunder. Job's probably thinking, I don't do thunder well. Matter of fact, he's thinking, I don't do anything well. I uh, used to teach a college class, and I would tell students, when you got a test that's really hard, go through the Go through the questions and see which ones you know the answer to. Just to give you some confidence. In other words, just skip the ones that are hard and go down. Hey, I know that one. It'll give you some confidence. Well, Job probably went through all 70 questions. He didn't have an answer to any of them. And finally, he responds. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I've uttered what I did not understand. I don't have a clue how this world was created. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. And the Bible says that God restored twice as much as Job had before. And he gave him 10 kids. He didn't give him 10 more kids. (laughs) Those kids he never lost. They were in heaven. You don't lose your kids. God knows where they are. (laughs) But he gave him 10 more kids, and he doubled everything else. What do we learn from this guy? The only way to be able to handle hell's power is with God's promises. The only way to handle the difficult times is thinking about the end times. Knowing that these afflictions are lasting, 
but they are not everlasting. My daughter Casey, she's about four. She uh, fell on the coffee table, cut her chin. By the time I got home, chin wasn't hurting anymore. She was playing, running around, having fun. I took a look at the chin. It was a pretty good cut. I called a doctor friend of mine, and he said, we better sew it up. I need, I'll meet you down at the hospital. You ever tried to reason with a four-year-old? I said, Casey, we need to go sew your chin up. She said, Daddy, it doesn't hurt anymore. It hurt a long time ago, and now I'm playing. I said, I, I know, honey, but, but we need to sew it up. Well, will it hurt? Well, yes, it will hurt. Well, why would we hurt it again? It doesn't hurt anymore now. I, it didn't work. So finally, I got on my knee and looked her in the eye and said, Honey, you, you know your daddy loves you, don't you? Yes, sir. You know you can trust me, don't you? Yes, sir. Well, honey, your, your, your chin is never going to be like it ought to be unless we sew it up. You're just going to have to trust your dad and go with me. Tear in her eye. Yes, sir. Being a psychologist, I wanted to make it easy as possible. So I said, now, after it's over, we go to Walmart and get you a prize. She said, that'd be good. <laughs> we get to the hospital parking lot, and she looks at me and said, I got a better idea. Let's go to Walmart first. <laughs> Whether you're 4 or 40 or 80, we all want the prize before the pain, don't we? <laughs> Doesn't work that way. I said, no, honey, we got to go in here first. And we went in there, and she grabbed hold of my hand and said, Daddy, Daddy, hold on to my hand. Don't let me go. I said, I won't let go. We get in the hospital bed there, and I got a hold of her hand, and, and they come with a little, I call it straight jacket because that's where I used to work, but it's like a papoose kind of thing where they can't hit the needles, so they put their arms down. I couldn't hold her arm, so she's kind of motioning down, and she wants me to grab hold of her foot. So I, I grabbed hold of her foot. I felt weird, big guy holding a little girl's foot, but yeah, that's what she wanted. That's what I did. And, well, you've probably been there if you have kids. It, it was awful. She cried. I cried. The doctor cried. I mean, it was bad. You know, it was awful. And as we're leaving, I'm thinking she'll never have anything to do with me again after this. And I felt that little hand grab back a hold of my hand, look down in those blue eyes, and she said, Daddy, I love you. Thanks for holding on to me. And I thought, that's God. We're going to have tribulation in this world. Be of good cheer. I've overcome this world, and I got a hold of you, and I'm not letting go. There's a kid in South Florida. He had one of those really bad days. So bad, he threw his books down on his front porch and jumped in the lake in the back of his house, closing all, just mad, just swimming out his anger, just not paying attention where he's swimming, just swimming and getting that anger out. He thought he was swimming toward the middle, but he was actually just swimming toward the side. And before he looked up, he was nose to nose with an alligator. And he made a... You turn and start heading back, alligator right behind him. Swimming, hollering, screaming. Neighbor heard it, called 911. Mother heard it, and mother hit the water. And mother and alligator arrived about the same time. But you know mothers. <laughs> she won. <laughs> had to take him to the hospital, though, because alligator had a hold of him. The TV anchor man interviewed him for television and said, everybody out there in TV land wants to see those scars where that alligator had a hold of you. He said, oh, I'll show him those scars. He showed him those scars on his legs. He said, but let me show you my other scars. I'm really proud of these scars. And he said, what other scars? He said, the scars on my arms where my mother wouldn't let go, those scars. You ever wonder why when Jesus came back from the cross, he had scars? I mean, he had a glorified body. Why, why, 
why would he have the, why would he have the scars? The scars are for me and for you. You see, God wanted you to know that no matter what happens to you, no matter what difficulty you go through, even Satan's best shot, death itself, God never lets go. And Jesus has the scars to prove it. How do you get through difficult times? You focus not on what this world and the scars can do to you. You focus on what the Savior has done for you. And when you focus on what the Savior has done for you, you don't pity yourself. You praise him. There will be times in life when you cannot celebrate your life, but you can celebrate the Lord. You cannot be happy with your circumstances, but you can be happy because of the character of God. In the dark, the only thing you can make it with is you have to trust the Father's heart and know that he never lets go. So you have two choices. You can pity yourself or you can praise your Savior. The songwriter put it this way. When you're up against the struggles that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears, don't let the faith you're standing in disappear. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him Praise the Lord. Now, Satan, he's a liar, and he wants to make you think you're a pauper when he knows himself you're children of the king. So lift up the mighty shield of faith. The battle must be won. Jesus Christ is risen. The work's already done. Praise the Lord. And those chains that seem to bind you will drop powerless behind you when you praise the Lord. Decide, I'm not going to pity myself. I'm going to praise the Lord. And when I have friends that go through difficulty, I'm going to use this as a book, as a grace book, to love and accept those people, not as a rule book to condemn those people. I am going to bless those people the way God has blessed me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you that you're such a good God, and thank you that you're our God because of Jesus Christ. Lord, we live in a difficult world. We can only get by, by faith knowing our Redeemer lives. Thank you that no matter what we go through, you never let go. And thank you that you came into our world and took Satan's best shot and conquered death so that we would be in your forever family. If there's someone here that's never trusted you as Savior, give them the faith to believe that you love them enough to conquer death because you wanted them in your forever family. Give someone the faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.